0: We look at science, and we look at technology, and we look at medicine, lab environments, R&D environments, where there's trial and error, right? And if you're in those disciplines, you know that it's actually the errors that create the value in helping you shape, perfect, and form your idea.
1: Welcome to Leadership Unscripted. This episode features Case Foundation CEO and National Geographic Society Chairman, Jean Case, in conversation with Professor Mary Margaret Frank. In this podcast, they will discuss the importance of taking risks, being fearless, and leveraging difference in order to
0: change the world.
1: For those of you who haven't read Jean's book, she's very authentic in the book in telling about her personal story. Uh, which I really appreciated and so I was wondering if you could just share or if you mind sharing with others this transformation or this journey uh, and evolution from being someone who received philanthropy Uh to someone who has graciously committed the majority of your resources to giving back
0: now that's right that's right Um, Well, maybe I'll just rewind the tape ever so slightly and tie it back to that kind introduction from Greg, too. Um, So I've had a pretty unusual background. Um, I started my career, uh, sort of my first official professional role was in the tech uh, community where I worked for about two decades, ended up really having the true privilege of building AOL. And then when I retired from that, my husband and I co founded the Case Foundation. And of course, I have this role at National Geographic that I love. So, why am I telling you all that? You know, when we created the Case Foundation, we said our mission was to invest in people and ideas that can change the world. And I think I'm looking at a lot of those kind of people in the audience this morning. But what I would find, that work uh, took me all over the United States and literally all over the world to the most remote small villages, you know, to the biggest bustling cities, like many of you. Um, and one thing really struck me, that no matter sort of the different area I was in, the kind of different backgrounds or perspectives that people had, they shared one thing in common, and that was that they had great ideas about how to make a better world. Now sometimes that was how to make a better village, <laughs> or neighborhood, but sometimes it really was you know, a groundbreaking idea. And you know, I can get a little excited about things and so I would often say, well gosh, like tell me, what are you doing about that? That's such a great idea, what have you done? And you can begin to see it, which is the body language of oh, that can't be me. I don't have the special genius you know, I don't have the category expertise. You could go right through the list, and I don't know about you guys, but some of those same things have played in my head mm-hmm. at times when I've thought about really striking out. So we got really curious about this, and this is ultimately what led to the book. We hired a team of experts to go to school and ask the question, so does it take a special characteristic to break through and find transformational change? So. It was really exciting work. This was in 2012 that that, uh, we hired the research team, and they came back with something that I found tremendously exciting and ties directly to my background, which is it's ordinary people who do extraordinary things. It turns out it doesn't take any of those things that we all think it does. Instead, what it is is an individual simply applying these five Simple but powerful principles that I cover in the book that I think we're going to talk about today. And the reason that made so much sense to me is, look, I was born in a town called Normal. Normal, <laughs> Illinois. I'm not kidding. It was a small town, a cornfield in my backyard. As Mary Margaret said, I was the youngest of four kids being raised by a single mom. There is no one that would have looked at my early life and had any idea that I would go on to have the opportunities I've had. Um, And I feel like my own life is just validation that, look, anyone can break through.
1: So you mentioned the five principles. So do you mind sort of sharing a little bit about each of your
0: five principles? Sure, I'll fly through them quickly and then maybe we can go a little more into depth. Um, So the first is make a big bet. And we like to say make a big bet and make history. And it's kind of a duh thing, isn't it? Of course, if you're gonna break through, it starts with a big idea. Except what comes more naturally to all of us is to seek incremental change. To see something and wanna make it a little bit better. But where breakthroughs happen is really almost when you kind of ignore that and you aim really high for a big new vision. Um, The next is be bold, take risks. Again, look, if you're trying something new, by its very nature, you're going to be taking risks. And we should probably talk a little bit about risk taking because people get a little uncomfortable when you talk about risk taking. And then naturally, if you're out there taking a risk, guess what? Failure might be an option. The next principle is make failure matter. And when you really go to school on people across sectors, across geographies, across time, It really is their ability to make failure matter by applying the powerful lessons of failure and not being stopped in your tracks by it. The next, and Greg referenced this a little bit, is reach beyond your bubble. You know, it turns out we're better together. And actually, while we're in the thrall in America of the lone genius in the garage, and we believe that's how things happen, that's actually not how innovations break through. How innovations break through, and you said it, is when different people come together with different backgrounds and perspectives. And last, but not least, because it's my fave, is let urgency conquer fear. Martin Luther King called it the fierce urgency of now. And boy, have we seen that play a powerful role and pushing people outside of their comfort zones and moments when they feel an urgent need for something to change. While we love our comfort zones, turns out nothing great really comes from the comfort zone. It's important to have, to fall back on. But at the end of the day, it's really when, you know, you kind of push past that, push past your fear, where we see transformational change. So I'm going to pick on, on one. Sure. First.
1: Okay. So risk.
0: Yeah. So
1: in business and in finance in particular, mm-hmm. um, We talk about all these issues about risk management, right? We have a board that we, we, now the big thing is having a risk management committee, right? So we're very in tune to managing risk. But yet you tell us to be fearless. Yes. And take bold risks. Right. (laughs) So the finance person in me is like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Okay. Right. How do we think about, especially if you think about, you know, if we're going to go into new business models, sure. right? New right.
0: services. How do, look at risk? How do you think about risk? It. Assessing it, mitigating it, right. taking it on. Right. So it's funny, you know, because I was in Minneapolis about ten days ago. I was <laughs> talking to, with a big insurance company and their teams, and I was thinking, now this is interesting. Talking to an insurance company about take risk. Um, you're, you know, you're talking about risk management, but it's even more extreme than that. Usually, it's risk mitigation that you're looking right. for. And if you think about boards, for instance, there's, in big institutions, there's an audit committee. And the real role of that audit committee is risk mitigation. My issue is it's often not balanced out by risk-taking as a conversation at the board table. Um, So in the book, and I'll, I'll just use a couple examples, in the book, I really try to say it's very important to assess what is measured versus reckless risk in a moment? And it's gonna look different for every individual, and it's gonna look different for every institution, right? But I use a couple of examples. So, you know, back in the day, Blockbuster, some of you are maybe too young to remember this, but Blockbuster owned (laughs) the video market, like owned the video market. Today, who owns the video market? Netflix, okay, they have a lot of people nipping at their heels, but they've clearly, Well, you know, when Netflix was young and growing, they went to Blockbuster and they said, "Look, you know, we're really, you know, we're really looking at possibly selling. Would you consider buying us?" The price tag of fifty million was put on the table, and Blockbuster kind of like, "We don't need you guys," and they took a pass. Well, you know, at its peak, uh, Netflix's value has been one hundred fifty billion. So, and Blockbuster isn't around. They have. One store left in Bend, Oregon today, and that is it, okay? Now, I don't think the Blockbuster leadership or board was dumb. They just were too confident and playing in defense mode and not realizing that the world was going to change and they needed to change with it. You know, really, Blockbuster should be Netflix. You know, digital photography was invented at Kodak, and again, if you're young, Kodak was a former film company that kind of used traditional film. And um, you know, that traditional film, they had eighty percent market share. So imagine how that meeting went when the guys came running in and said, we found a way to make (laughs) pictures without using film. It was existential to Kodak, right? So of course they didn't double down on that. Others came along and did. So I think too often while boards spend time on risk mitigation, they're not asking the question of what's the risk of not taking the risk? And in our own lives, we immediately go to the downside of the risk, and we don't spend enough disciplined time saying, but what is the risk if I don't take the risk? And sometimes that can lead you to a different place. But I do have tools and techniques in the book. I refer to the work of others to find how you kind of get a sense of your own risk tolerance as an institution or a person, and then how you kind of be, could look at measured versus reckless risk. You know, one of the lines in the book that made me smile
1: is when you said, you know, Kodak, going to your Kodak, is it used to be a Kodak moment. Yeah. Right. I don't, for those of you that don't know about Kodak, you're not going to, that's not going to resonate, but I got this big smile because that's what I remember growing up is, yeah, we used to say it's a Kodak moment. Right. right? And we don't, I'm you've probably right. not heard that. I'm anymore. walking down the
0: street <laughs> with two of our millennial kids this weekend and they said, boy, that's a grammable moment if I've ever seen one. And I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, Kodak would die. Right. <laughs> okay. So,
1: no, we, okay, if you take risk, right? You do all the mitigation that you can't. Like, not, let's not use mitigation. All the assessing, yeah, right. But in essence, once you've done all that, once you've done all your due diligence, and you've moved forward boldly, yeah,
0: risk means still means there's a proba- probability of failure.
1: Absolutely.
0: So you know, we look at science, and we look at technology, and we look at medicine, lab environments, R and D environments, where there's trial and error right? And if you're in those disciplines, you know that it's actually the errors that create the value in helping you shape, perfect, and form your idea. For some reason, outside of those disciplines, we pretend that you can have trial and not have error, <laughs> that you, know, you shouldn't accept or expect failures along the way. But the bottom line is, if you're out there risk-taking and trying to innovate and trying something new, Of course failure is a possibility. And so one of the things I advise in the book that I've seen work very effectively is chunk down the big bet. Chunk it down so now it's not a reckless risk. Chunk it down to where you can take it in steps that are snackable so that if failure happens, it's not curtains, okay? It's just a moment we gotta step back and say, all right, how do I need to pivot now to go right or to go left? And I just think you know, if we could adopt that risk taking as R&D in our lives and in our institutions and put failure on the table, talk about the fact that look, we're gonna try this thing and what if it doesn't work? To do that as a leader with your teams is so powerful because you've just taken away the fear and the insecurity that comes around both risk taking and the fear of failure. Um, And you know it just like here's what we'll do if this happens. and when I talk about failure I feel like it's important to say I'm not talking about screwing up Okay, (laughs) I'm not talking about like just not doing what you're expected to do I'm talking about you really did have a studied path a reasonable set of things that you're out there to try and you've done them and now they haven't turned out. So at the Case Foundation, we have something called failure bonuses. And the reason we have them is because we ask of our teams to really push the envelope. We discuss very openly that, look, we're trying something really big and hard here, it may not work out. And if teams have done everything they've been expected to do, but we put something out there, and you know, the dogs didn't eat the dog food, look, they're gonna get rewarded for their effort and not shamed for the fact that something we tried didn't work. You know, the other
1: example I remember from the book is you talk about green, yellow, and red, right? And there's uh, an incident where you didn't have any reds, yeah. right? And, and you're like, wait, 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 if we're risk-taking, right. we should definitely have some reds. Right, Right, so, Which yeah. I think is really uh, So what Mary Margaret's great. talking about is
0: we do competitive yes. business plans. Our teams decide at the Case Foundation what we're gonna back. Um, and they compete with each other for like what is the most unique and what we believe would be the highest thing we might get behind. Um, And then we assess it, of course, and we do use this green, yellow, red, how's it going? Um, And there's two sides to that. Have we done what we need to do? And then we always have cross-sector partners. Have they done what they need to do? Um, And yeah, one year we got to the review at the end of the year and there were no reds. And it's like, kind of feels like if we really have decided that the place we want to be, we want to be the first risk capital out there. It's philanthropy. It's 100% capital loss. That's what philanthropy is. So why should we not be highly risk capital? Try things that others can't try. And so from that point forward, you know, we sort of said, there's no shame in reds. In fact, if we're really doing what we intend to do, we should have an occasional red or two. I mean, there's a line, make
1: risk matter, right? Uh, I love that, right? And so I'm, th- I'm wondering if you could share with us how you've re- made risk matter in in your life as yeah. you move through and have taken risk and sort of this notion of failing
0: forward. Yeah, yeah. And and we talk about it as make failure matter. And um, you know, you can't really write a book called Be Fearless and say really like embrace failure <laughs> and then not tell your own story. It's a failure. And I don't know if I've done it at UVA before or not, but often when I stand in front of students, I have in the past read my failure bio after you know, uh, an illustrious bio gets read that makes it all sound so perfect, when in fact it you know, really is a story of this. Um, and I think, you know, I told a story of our most public failure in the book, which was a clean water initiative in sub-Saharan Africa, where we were targeting 10 countries in 1,000 villages for a clean water initiative, we had all kinds of partners, uh, and President Clinton at, at the time, his team asked, would we please come and spotlight it at the Clinton Global Initiative, and we were just getting started and we said, that's just not really how we roll, like we kind of want to get into it and then we'll have something. But anyway, long story short, we did it. So I had President Clinton to my right, First Lady Laura Bush to my left as we're kind of launching this thing, and it doesn't go well. And we're now in execution mode and things are not working. Both the quality and the scale is not what we really had put on the table to do. We had government partners, we had private sector partners, I mean, we had friends who, you know, were part of this. And so I was chairing the board at that time, and so, you know, we spent about at least a year, maybe more, trying to course correct, changing things on the ground, trying to really address what execution needs there were. Um, And ultimately, we realized it wasn't working. So we made a decision as, the, as a board that we needed to come clean and say we were not going forward with the initiative. And by that time, I think we were in like 600 villages, I can't remember, 700, something like that. And um, so I wrote a blog called The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short. And man, I laid it out there. And before I hit that send button, I was scared to death. I write about it in the book. I'll never forget like seeing my finger over that send button, but actually something really great happened colleagues from all over reached out and said, thanks for talking about failure, because when you're doing big audacious things, failure is always a risk. Sorry for the failure, uh, but can we get together and talk about like failure, because we've had some too. and we So we started doing these fail-fests, which were behind closed doors, um, under story. the radar, not to, not to celebrate failure, but really to share each other's stories of failure, so we could learn from each other, and we found if you have a little beer and wine, it helps a lot. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, it's just, uh, it's been at least in our work, and yeah. I would say colleagues have told us that it was transformational to actually, you know, take again, as I said, the power of fear of talking about failure, acknowledging failure, and if you think about it, in government, if you try something audacious, new, yeah. and you fail, waste, fraud, and abuse. So we shouldn't be surprised that we have these sectors that just don't want to ever acknowledge that maybe something they've done hasn't worked out the way it was intended to. You know,
1: it's, it's interesting when you, when you talk about this because this notion of what I just heard was like the cross-sector differences right, in whether it's private sector or not-for-profit or government sector, and the lack of understanding that we have with regards right. to the incentives that they're under, sort of how they think about risk, right, Right. and, and in your work with those sectors, have you, know, like, if we think about, we're in D.C., working with a variety of yeah. sectors, are there any tips uh,
0: that you think about when you're Yeah, um, Yeah, I would say that, and then I think, you know, I can give you an example. So we really did the research for what we call the social sector, which was nonprofits, government, and philanthropies. That's what we thought our targeted audience was, and it was stunning to us after we we brought the paper out. This was long before the book, how the private sector took it up, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really wasn't a sector that didn't sort of say, wow, like we really need to think about or apply, you know, some of these lessons. So in my role as chairman at National Geographic, you know, I'm very fortunate because it's a 131-year-old venerable institution. Great leaders have come before me and will lead after me. So I feel like I sort of am a steward of this seat. But I often go into our archives, and we have very rich archives, uh, and minutes from all the board meetings that have taken place in the last 131 years. And about 100 years ago, there was a new technology coming out called photography. And at the time, National Geographic was a very serious scientific and exploration journal. And so the editor comes in, and he's kind of exuberant, and he says, I have a great idea. I think we could use photography to make our science and exploration stories come to life. Well, the board was having none of it. That's a fad that will never last. You'll cheapen our cred as scientists if we put this newfangled photography thing in the magazine. Well, thankfully, Alexander Graham Bell was the president at the time, and I think he said to the board, no, I think we should do this photography thing, and I think when he said that, you could kind of say, all right, the board fell a little bit in line But before they were done, two board members resigned over the decision to take that risk. Let me fast forward the tape for you. Today, we're the first brand in the world to have surpassed 100 million Instagram users, followers. Um, Our documentary that came out this year, Free Solo, won an Academy Award, and last week we won eight Emmys. Today, if you're a young person, if you're not a young person, if you're anywhere in life, National Geographic content can come to you in the way you want to get it. If it's social media, it's social media. If it's your cable channels, we've got two. If it's the traditional magazine, that's going to stay. So in many ways, we touch nearly a billion people every month. National Geographic is so much more relevant today in a very real way across societies and across the world. and I look back to that important moment when some board members were willing to take that risk of yes on photography because obviously today we're known, our, photographer, our photography mm-hmm. has really solidified the brand. So if we think about
1: risk taking and we think about you know in your book, there are many women that you talk about that have been successful being fearless and given that this, un- this leadership unscripted, one of, the, one of the focuses of leadership unscripted
0: is about women yeah, and their right, journey. Right. I was wondering if you could
1: tell sure. a story or two about...
0: Yeah, yeah and the book is a storytelling book. You. The principles try to come to life yeah. through the stories of how people have applied them. So I'll give you one from the past and one very contemporary, if that's okay, and I'll yeah. try to be quick about it. So some of you may uh, have heard of Madam C.J. Walker. But she was born Sarah Breedlove uh in 1867 on a plantation where her parents had been slaves. Her brothers were barbers and she developed a hair infection. And so she was playing with some concoctions to try to figure out her hair was falling out. What could she do to save her hair? And of course her brothers helped, et cetera. Anyway, she found a very successful formula and she did what all entrepreneurs do, which is at the end of the day solve problems and realize wait, if I'm having this problem, other people are having this problem. Maybe there's a business here. So she put her concoction together. Um, She created a company, um, and she went around the country selling her hair care products. But more importantly, she didn't just sell them. She felt a real mission to empower women by helping to train them to sell their products. At the time, if you think about it, there really weren't jobs available for women for the most part. And by the way, She had almost entirely uh, black women as, you know, the people that she worked with. There were like no jobs other than maybe, you know, domestic work for black women back in the day. And so this gave financial empowerment to women. Before she was done, she had a huge business out of Indianapolis, which I've been to her building, and she employed 3,000 people. She is recognized, perhaps, as the first self-made female millionaire in America. And she was born the daughter of a slave. Communities she would go into, she was risking her life. So when I'm having kind of a bad day, I think, (laughs) well, you know what? If she can do what she did, I can do this today. And she's a celebrated philanthropist. And it was so fun because uh, on this tour, we've met people who are descendants of women who've worked for her some of her own descendants, we've had the chance to spend time on. And we have a Be Fearless video series and we've been tweeting it out from the Case Foundation. It's on Facebook if you want to take a look at at Madam CJ's story. But the other story I tell very early in Start Right Where You Are is is actually the first chapter in the book under Make a Big Bet. And the reason it's Start Right Where You Are is because in the same way it doesn't take special characteristics, sometimes it doesn't take the right conditions either. Now luck always plays a role, we know that. But I really try to highlight stories when, again, just like my life, if you would look at where someone got started, you'd go, ah, that's not gonna work. So, Sarah Blakely, mm-hmm. the founder of Spanx. Yeah. <laughs> and if the men don't know Spanx in the room, trust me, I think the women do. <laughs> um, and so anyway, she's going to a party one night, right? She's selling fax machines for a living. Now, to the young people in the room, fax machines used to be a way of trading documents. <laughs> um, and so she's selling fax machines door to door. And she's going to a party one night, and she puts on these capri pants, which means they don't go all the way down, and she wants to wear sandals. She's living in Florida. And she realizes she has the webbed feet if she wants the slimming effect of pantyhose. So she does what many of us have done. Cuts the feet. I see some shaking heads. I've done it too. <laughs> right out of the pantyhose. Well, the difference between Sarah and, say, me, is Sarah goes, whoa. If I need this, other women need this. I wonder if there's a product here. And so she goes on. She knew nothing about fashion. She had no background to suggest she could build a great business. And, of course, she has a very successful company, Spanx, today. Um, And she's a member of the Giving Pledge. As a billionaire, she's committed most of her resources to make a difference in this world. So she says, and I quote her in the book, and it's a little bit like Brian Chesky, the co-founder of Airbnb, It was precisely what I did not know that was my advantage. So I want to say to both people in this room and anybody that is gathered in Charlottesville, well, don't buy into the story that you don't have what it takes. Story after story after story confirms, look, it doesn't take a certain quality. Sometimes it doesn't even take the right conditions. Start right where you are and get on that path if you have an idea that you think could be transformational. Thank you. That's, so if we think about being fearless,
1: right, do you think being fearless looks different for
0: women? And if so, yeah. how and like why, yeah. do you think? I do. I think that, and it, it isn't the fault of women, but I think that women, society has conditioned women uh, almost look down on boldness in women. And we see this play out uh, in many different ways. You know, I was at the beach this past summer, and these two boys were so obnoxious around us. Like, we were kind of saying, are their parents ever going to, like, tell them just chill out one level, right? (laughs) And then this young girl comes in and joins in the fray, and she's every bit now as, as, you know, loud and having fun as they are. And the mom comes out screaming and yanks her arm and says be quiet, and doesn't say a word to the boys. You know, girls don't act like that. And that is a message that many women have received. We have not been rewarded for our boldness Mm -hmm. too often. Now, some have, but many have not. And I think it really would help if we'd understand that. The other thing that, you know, it's really kind of a social thing, uh, and that is that, you know, I think women uh, are used to kind of what we'll say being hit on meaning getting kind of approached in a way they don't want to be. So we learn in our body language and even our eye contact to kind of demur, mm-hmm. to try to hide in the situation. And really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is fend off, okay? So now, expect that same person, if they have an idea or they you know want to do something to break through, to really dig deep now and they're the ones doing this, okay? There are just so many, like, things that have to change in society to enable women to have the level playing field, in my opinion, that men have had for a really long time. And I'm super encouraged. I see so many bold women out there, but I just think they truly deserve, in many cases, an extra pat on the back for fearlessness because we're still at a time in society where that hasn't changed dramatically for young women. Yeah. You know, and you talk about a lot about like eliminating blind spots. Yeah. Right, and
1: to, to go to this this unconscious bias, right? Mm-hmm. Like the mother probably didn't realize she has an unconscious bias about the way she is right. reacting. Right, her boys were
0: there and her daughter was
1: there and she only corrected right. the daughter. So, so, you know, if we think about that and we think about women professionally, why is it so important for us to think about limiting the biases,
0: right? Right, so what I would say to any woman in the room, and I want to say this to the men too, because it's important for you to understand this. So I've spent a lot of time in my career being the only one. And sometimes that might be the only one. That's the woman. Sometimes that might be the only one who didn't have two parents. Sometimes that might be uh, the only one who doesn't have a college degree. I don't have a college degree. Um, I could go right down that line. And I've had to really discipline myself not to carry that as a burden in the moment. That, oh my God, if I screw up, then everybody's gonna say, of course those people are losers that are X, okay? And it took me a long time to kind of shed that and to come to the table as an equal. But here's what helped. So many times I would find that the very characteristics that would be different about me would be the difference uh, a remarkable difference in the situation. I could see that I could bring something that others didn't have. Similarly, I could see they're bringing a perspective to me that I didn't have. But what I would say if you're a woman in this world today and you find yourself too alone in a situation, think that you might actually be the special ingredient that changes everything. And you know, I tell the story of Jill Andrews in the book. So it's a, it's a bit of a long story. I'm gonna try and make it really short. So we did something called Contest and Grand Challenges where we trained up 35 federal agencies how to drive innovation through calling the public into problem solving. So when the Ebola uh, issue was raging and they knew that the Ebola suit was putting healthcare workers at risk, we did a Contest and Grand Challenge across the United States with USAID to design a new Ebola suit. So Jill Andrews from Baltimore signs up for the one that's taking place at Johns Hopkins. Jill Andrews was a wedding dressmaker and so she sat at the table and across the country teams were vying. And can you imagine who was at the table with her? People steeped in medicine and science and you know, knew the situation on the ground in Africa, et cetera. And she said, look if you can build a bra, you can build a bridge. (laughs) Like, my my skills are highly relevant here because what's needed is an outfit that somebody can get in and out of easily, that limits the number of closures, and and any bride has exactly that. Well, long story short, Jill's team won the national competition, and to a person, they said, had Jill Andrews not been at the table, they would not have won. So think about yourself as that Jill Andrews. when you're and to the men as well when you're in a situation and you think "Uh, I'm not sure I'm up to what everybody else has here you might be that very person that changes everything well if you don't mind I'd like to go to a
1: particular blind spot that I am uh, very passionate about which is uh, women on boards Um, and what we find (coughs) like so my experience on boards has been when you go out to find new board members Right, networks really matter, uh, but network and in and the, in the bringing in and facilitating new board members onto your board well, the, the issue then becomes how do we avoid the blind spots that are embedded in our networks yeah. right to then sort of challenge our cur- current directors on boards to reach beyond their bubble using right. your phrase right? right reach beyond this bubble to bring in women on boards because they're not necessarily in their networks.
0: Yeah, so I think it's a very and it's so maddening to me that I really have to like sometimes have a hard time containing myself when I hear people say we we just don't know any great women. Yeah. One time I'm not kidding I hope you that line drives me crazy. I had a board chair write me one time and I was sitting at Fortune's Most Powerful Women Gathering, surrounded by three hundred Unbelievable women. And yeah. you know, the Fortune issue is out that month. And I'm like, well, here's like three organizations that champion, you know, great women. And maybe you open Fortune magazine and you might see that there's some really killer women out there. Um, but really, I try, I, I really do try to embrace when people are just honest enough to say we just don't know. So the only way out of that, and by the way, I just don't know sometimes too. And probably someone else is going, I can't believe she says she just doesn't know. I think the only way to solve that is to be intentional in reaching out to people who are different. Putting, that's really what Reach Beyond the Bubble <laughs> calls for. It says, "Who's not at the table?" So when I came into philanthropy from the private sector, and you know I would go into these rooms where grand institutions were planning solutions for, let's say, people in poverty. I'd say, "Well, who have you talked to in that community?" Well, we haven't. So we wrote a a paper on citizens at the center. Now, you wouldn't think you'd actually have to say, how about you talk to the very people you're trying to serve, right? Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is, across society, we have to be intentional to find people that we don't know who have different skills or backgrounds or intelligences that maybe we don't have but we need. And I will say, you know, the other thing I write about in the book is, look, we're at the business school, and if you're not paying attention to what's happening in venture capital and startups, I'm hoping there's like all kinds of classes where you're just intensely focused on it. Because we are at a 40-year low in America, new business startups. The Kauffman Foundation, widely recognized as a leader in data around the state of startups, has said, All net new jobs in America come from startups, from new high growth firms. What makes a new firm be high growth? The jet fuel called venture capital. What's happening in venture capital? Three disturbing trends. The first is last year, 79% of venture capital went to just three places in the United States. California, New York, and Massachusetts. So our nation's third largest state, which is now Florida, got less than 2% of venture capital. Very siloed, very, all your eggs in just a few baskets. If I put up a picture of where the Fortune 500 was founded, it's exactly the opposite. 75% of them were founded between the coasts. So this is not a lack of talent, this is not a lack of ability. It's much more dire for women and people of color. Last year, only 2.2% of venture capital. 2.2% of venture capital went to women-led startups last year, and less than 1% to African American founders. So I don't really think, like this problem of women on boards, you've gotta peel back that onion. Mm -hmm. You've really gotta look across society and say, how do we really create more of a level playing field? And I don't even see this as a social justice thing. It is a social justice thing, but everybody gets that. I see this as an economic and an innovation imperative. Because just like I said, what do entrepreneurs at the end of the day do? They solve problems. They usually solve problems with things they're familiar with. And the bottom line is, women live different problems than men. People of color live different problems than others. It might be actually the key to bringing in a whole new wave of innovations that the elites on the coast will never even have any idea. To think of, you know, and I think of a company in Africa, Hello Tractor, um, and you know, it's this young guy who saw in farming there was so much manual labor that was needed in Africa, even for very smallhold farmers. Why wasn't there any kind of equipment available for smaller sort of format farms? So they created this company called Hello Tractor. And if you think about it, it's a little bit like Uber for tractors, where on Monday, you know, Sally can use the tractor and on Friday, Charles can for three hours. And what it's doing in terms of yields, what we're seeing is people using that or expanding their hold. But that is because they knew the problem on the ground. I wouldn't know that. I just wouldn't know that sitting here. So, the kind of innovations I think we'll see will move us into a whole new realm where it's not just more convenience for people who have convenience. It really could be, you know, groundbreaking. Leadership Unscripted is a Darden
1: speaker series hosted at UVA Darden DC Metro in Arlington, Virginia. To learn more, visit us at darden.virginia.edu.